somehow, Palpatine survived. Man fell down a reactor shaft. I mean, talk about plot armor. Yeah, I think the key to that uh, that plot armor is that you just have to hand the franchise off to 13 people who don't know what they're doing. Live from the Mundangerous Bulletproof Van in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 308 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about the ultimate drama killer, plot armor. But first, the party hires some help in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the king under the mountain holds off Smaug single-handedly in the Character Creation Forge. Okay, so this is maybe a little bit of inside baseball, but the way that the uh, intros work is that whoever writes the... uh, the episode also writes the intro. So a lot of times I sit down to record, and if this is an Ishan episode, I don't know where we're, you know, supposedly recording from. Mm -hmm. And today I learned I have a van. (laughs) It's bulletproof. (laughs) What about me seems like a van owner to you? (laughs) Well, it's because I didn't want to use armor in the name, so I was like, I'm not an armored car or an armored truck, a bulletproof plane? No, van. Okay. Van. Let's go van. Car. Uh, Pope-mobile actually came to mind. If you, if you want a Pope-mobile. Well, I mean... But everyone looks silly. It doesn't matter that you can't get shot. It looks silly. Pope-mobiles and hearses have to have, like... Junk in the trunk? The, the most limited resale value. <laughs> I don't know. I feel, like, I feel like there are a lot of people who buy hearses, like, just for and giggles. Oh, I, I mean, I had a, a, a guy in my high school class uh, bought one that had flames painted on the side and across the back it said The Last Ride. <laughs> I mean, you know. That was his daily driver. <laughs> it's definitely one of those things where you see a 17-year-old put a ratty mattress in the back. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was that. <laughs> it was for murder. Uh, anyway, uh, I guess this is the, uh, the first episode of our return to our regularly scheduled programming. So we'll be back to our normal episodes featuring the Gates of Morning campaign, our main topic, and as well as the, uh, character creation forge. So we should be settling back into the normal routine. Uh, want to appreciate everybody listening, giving feedback and, uh, playing along with the, uh, actual play series, the, the second season of Tez's adventures, but, uh, we're going to go back to our normal for a little while. Ah, uh, yes, the normal. So, as always, if you have recommendations or suggestions for topics you want to hear us cover, for builds you want to see in the Forge, or what have you, just let us know at TPTCast on Twitter or hop in the Discord. Link in the show notes. Uh, the other thing that's going on completely normally is we are still doing a plot hook every single week released exclusively for Patreon. Uh, we now have a Patreon feed set up so you can get it right in your podcatcher, uh, and that is available at any level of support on Patreon. Sometimes those are so good, I'm just like, man, I wish we were releasing this for free because I want everyone to experience this plot hook. But yeah, I know. Just, it doesn't work like that. I know. We rip the best, the best plot hooks from the headlines. Mm-hmm. It's a shame, really. But, you know, as you do. Oh, well. Well, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Fairhaven, the peaceful capital of Ondaire, the party is hunting down quarry mine seeds.
they've detected the planar influence of Dalcor, the region of dreams. But it seems like powerful magics are obscuring the source. In the meantime, Warden the Druid seeks out the largest green space available in the city. It is, on its edges, a manicured park. But the interior is wild and overgrown. Then, near the center, there's a grove of huge intertwined oak trees forming a cathedral-like canopy. In animal form, he scouts the area and eventually spots a lone elf dressed in a fine tunic that should probably be a lot dirtier than it actually is, given that the elf is busy crushing berries and grinding herbs on a long wooden table. He then takes the bottled results, uh and then carefully stacks them, even though all of the bottles are haphazardly labeled, if they're labeled at all. After several minutes of observation, the elf calls out to Warden. He introduces himself as Brentis Hermero, a druid of some skill, and pulls a bottle of wine from his collection to offer as a token of friendship. Ah, uh, a druid himself. I suppose that's why he was able to clock Warden in bird form. Of course, never one to turn down a gift, Warden reverts to humanoid form and takes several deep swigs of the preferred bottle. The wine is surprisingly fortifying, and when Brenthaus recognizes that Warden has suffered no ill effects, he seems pretty delighted. You know, not that he expected any ill effects, of, of course. Mm-hmm, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just casually drug people. <laughs> In fact, he presents him with a sack full of bottles with evocative names, and perhaps unknown effects and asks Warden to give them to all of his friends and report back with the results. The next morning, Lenore and Zan try the Thrash compound again. Lenore doesn't spot anyone following them this time. They arrive at a small one-story building with no compound around it to speak of. Uh, with very few dragon shards to find in this part of Corvair, the house's interests here involve mostly bounty hunting, and a polished wooden seal of a dragon decorates the entry hall. While the sun is up outside, the interior is dimly lit, though Lenore knows that every dragon-marked house member can see in the dark, including her. Several doors lead off the main room, and a bored-looking human sits behind a low desk. He looks them up and down, says... Hmm, don't get many house members from out of town around this way, unless they're just passing through. Are you looking for a place to stay the night? We've got discounted rates, of course. Lenore mentions that they were tailed. He says, don't let the royal eyes get to you. They're bothersome, but keep your nose clean and they can't do anything. If you're working in town, we've got all the right permits for inquisitives and bounty hunters alike. Not much use for prospectors this far north. He introduces himself as Merrick and Lenore can see a crest on his sleeve marking him as a de Valderin, one of the three family lines that runs House Thrashk. She also knows that Torn, one of the names of the mine seeds given by Elaine, is another of the family lines. The rest of the party convenes at the Thrashk compound shortly afterward, and between them, they all decide that they're just going to go ahead and hire a pair of Thrashk inquisitives to investigate the Marble Halls district and this abandoned temple of the Silver Flame that Bramble suspects might be where Otho and Triage are hiding out. After little more than an hour, the two return and report that there was nothing to find. When pressed about the Temple of the Silver Flame specifically, their gaze is dull and they seem confused, insisting there's nothing to find there. 
Bramble dazzles them with magic, but they seem to be telling the truth. Now extremely suspicious, the party sends the Inquisitors back out, but this time they follow them. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week we are talking about plot armor. It's one of those things that always comes up in games. And in my experience, people are always sort of like frustrated about it or they they bring it up uh, as something to make fun of. But if you don't like it, it's pretty hard to like disentangle your narrative or your game from it. And if you don't care about it, it's actually still affecting your game anyway. It was a bit of a factor in the decision making in our in in season two of our actual play. Oh yeah, that's true about about like whether plot armor was in effect in the moment, and I think it's interesting. Like we'll get into this a little bit later, but a lot of it has to do with perception. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it didn't even matter. The truth does not matter in this case, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter whether or not the character in question had plot armor. If I assume he did, then I made certain decisions based on that. <laughs> then he did. (laughs) All right. So what is plot armor? Uh, It's one of those like tropey terms that's thrown out a lot of the times. Yes, in RPGs, but often like most often in fiction. And plot armor is when the story requires that a character survives, even if the circumstances or in a game, the dice would indicate otherwise. Yeah, this gets a bad rap because it reduces or eliminates drama and tension. It's not necessarily restricted to a character dying, but it can also just be a shield for negative consequences. This is the, you know, the collection of deus ex machina, the, uh, you know, improbable preparations, you, you know, all the types of, of different um, collection of tropes that uh, that feed into, wow, this character really doesn't have to deal with any consequences, do they? Yeah, I think people hate it so much because it's often so wrapped up in like author insert characters or like your your Mary Sue, your Gary Stu, who, you know, seemingly can do no wrong and, you know, their hair is always perfectly in place. But when they're confronted with challenges, even if they do amazing things and overcome them, it never feels like they were ever in any danger because like they probably weren't because there was no chance the author was going to kill them i think this happens a lot in like a long running long running series uh where you're like well you're definitely not killing your cash cow i mean george R. R. martin did it <laughs> which is why people were like at least initially right they were so wowed by like you know the bravery of the author to kill the main character right and then they all ended up with plot armor anyway right or at least in the show i don't know so like plot armor isn't ultimately good or bad Right. Like there are instances, not even just instances, like plot armor is often a good thing. Common sense usually dictates that the main character of a story will at least make it to the end of the story. Right. Like in order to like have the big confrontation at the end where then you find out if they live or die. If typically main characters were just dying out in the middle of a story or in in a game, you constantly have uh, members of the party dying willy-nilly it's really hard to like create and craft a coherent narrative where people are actually on the same page yeah it can also be difficult to build a party that's cohesive right like never mind the narrative like do we 
work together? Do we have a reason to exist together? Do we have complementary skills? You know, like, um, as those as characters die, that starts to break down, right? Especially in games where you have random character generation. Yeah, like we talk a lot about having a session zero and planning not just like who your characters will be, but like what are their bonds between each other and like how do you work as a party, like a group of people who have history in a real world, but also like as sets of mechanical abilities in a game system. And I don't think we've actually talked that much about like what happens when your session zero breaks down or is totally no longer applicable because you've basically swapped out so many characters so many times. Mm-hmm. Now, we are now a party of the between second and seventh siblings of the original party members. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it can suck the drama out of a fight, right? Like, you know that in a book, the <laughs> you know that if you're in the middle of a book, the sub boss that someone is fighting right now isn't going to kill them, right? So automatically the battle has low stakes and, and it becomes about how they survive or you know what else they give up other than dying or you know maybe what what kind of like injury are they going to be saddled with now in rpgs all of this sort of plays out a little bit differently you know the the genre conventions of an rpg means that having plot armor is kind of is less jarring people sort of expect it right like almost all rpg games Almost all RPGs have the concept of PCs versus NPCs, which is really just sort of a mechanical representation of like who has plot armor and who doesn't. If you don't have plot armor, you're a quest giver or an NPC or a hireling. <laughs> right. Or at least some level of plot armor, right? Sometimes NPCs get more plot armor than PCs. <laughs> yeah, it depends on how much people love them, right? <laughs> so we've already talked a little bit about the narrative and party cohesion that is maintained. Uh when you provide plot armor, right? The, the, the risk of death changing party makeup or uh, derailing narrative. Uh, I think that also ramps up as you get towards the end of arcs and the end of campaigns, right? Like the closer you get to the end of a character's story, the more you want to play it out versus have it end, mm-hmm. you know, prematurely. I think when you're used to, to seeing plot armor in fiction, like non-interactive fiction, you can't just port it over to your game because it doesn't play out the same way. Like think about probably one of the most common instances where you have plot armor is during a flashback. And you know that if you're reading about a character in a flashback or watching a, a TV episode, like how many TV episodes start with, you know, a confrontation and then, you know, it it says three weeks ago. Right. Like, I mean, there are entire like um, TV series where the whole thing is a flashback. So, you know, they're not going to die. But if you're playing it out at a table, it's fun to play at the flashback. Um, actually, is like a scenario that I like to do a lot. But now, you know that these characters need to make it to the end of it. But you have dice to contend with. Right. So no matter what the dice say, you have to contrive a way for the characters to survive. Right. Sometimes that means you just, well, fine. They survive because... They're knocked out instead of killed. And sometimes that means a very improbable enemy decides not to finish the di- the drill. <laughs> or you're in a situation where now you're fudging dice and they're trying to pretend that you're not. And it, yeah, it gets, it gets complicated and messy. Right. So we touched on this a, b- a bit before, but a lot of this boils down to perception versus reality. The, pro- the problem of plot armor in games is not that it exists. 
It's when players believe that it is ironclad, that they cannot die, that there will not be consequences for their actions. That's when things go off the rails. That's when players start, you know, seizing too much of the narrative. That's when players decide that they're going to turn into murder hobos because, like, who cares? We're untouchable. Well, right, because they no longer have that tension, right? Like, they, they no longer have the dramatic tension of what happens upon failure. What are the what are the narrative costs of failure? If getting into a fight or breaking into a building or whatever is never going to have negative consequences for you, then like the game is now boring and I am going to automatically subconsciously ratchet up the stakes by like, I don't know, burning down an inn as one might do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, if you go full murder hobo, I I mean the, the flip side of that, right. Is like, if you are, uh, a mid-level gang in Band of Blades, right? And you're you're a group of street toughs. Then, if you're like you know in a narrative phase and describing you walking into a shop and roughing up the shopkeeper and taking what you want, like you have plot armor there, right? But that's in service of the narrative of of your power and disregard for the law and you know the the fear that you're imposing on your territory. Right. So like depending on the game or depending on the narrative situation, plot armor is is a way of reinforcing your untouchability if that's the purpose. Right. You don't want that to be tense. You don't want to be nervous that your tough gangers are uh possibly going to be, you know, shotgunned to death by the, the uh the the innkeeper. Like that's not the ending <laughs> of this. We're the heroes, not them. <laughs> yeah. Like it's it's it all boils down to how you're using the plot armor, right? And and the player's understanding of like when they are allowed to wield it and like when it no longer applies. And actually like finding out that you don't have plot armor is probably one of the most jarring things. I mean, it can be good, like a good wake-up call, but it can also just sort of like ruin a game. Like if I were playing a, you know, a teenage romance game, I would fully expect that my character has some level of plot armor in that they're not going to get murdered in our high school story, right? Right, yeah. The first time you get stabbed in a bathroom is probably going to be a little jarring for you. Right. Okay, different kind of game. All right, fine. What, what, what kind of school is this? <laughs> it's Euphoria High School. <laughs> yeah. Wait, spoilers. <laughs> so I think the sweet spot for most games is to make plot armor at least partially applicable but make it so that it doesn't feel that way, right? You want the safety net to be invisible or or at least unobtrusive. Ah, uh, yes, the invisible hand. Of the plot market? The plot market, yeah. Yeah, we place all the narrative threads um, in a marketplace of, oh, I don't know, ideas, I suppose. Uh, exactly. <laughs> May the best idea win out. <laughs> this idea just happened to rise to the top. Sure. Its father is a member of the board, but that has nothing to do with it. Sure, its author is the GM, but, you know. (laughs) So what if this idea was born on third base and acts like it hit a triple? Somehow my ideas are always the best one. I don't get it. All right, so let's talk about some methods in order to make this happen. Uh, Well, let's talk about some narrative methods first. And I think this is sort of like the platonic ideal of implementing plot armor. It's just like to have it naturally arise out of the story that's being told. So I think... The probably the most basic way to do this is to give players a challenge while also giving them a way out or second chances in the story. 
So, you know, reinforcements can come in at the last moment or they have a, a patron who's looking out for them who is, you know, can pull some strings and stay the execution order or whatever. Yeah, I mean, look, nothing nothing screams easy prep like losing a fight and waking up in jail. <laughs> like, at least you know where the players are going next. Out of jail. They're going out of jail. That's, Actually, they're going in the mess hall, but <laughs> then they're getting out of this jail. Knowing my players, they'll be like, we're in jail? Great. We uh, find the biggest person and pick a fight with them. <laughs> Finally. Three hots and a cot. <laughs> <laughs> no orcs in here. I love this place. You can also, though, like, think about the the kinds of stories that you're often telling. Um, if I were playing a swashbuckler game and I wanted to implement, or if I was running a swashbuckler, swashbuckling game and wanted to implement plot armor, I would introduce enemies who want to wound the PCs, who want to humiliate them, who want to rob them, who want to take things away from them, but don't necessarily want to kill them. Like, there are plenty of things to threaten, other than a character's life. This is kind of like the Superman problem, right? It's like, uh, Superman is boring because he can't die. Well, no, there are a lot of things you can do with Superman that don't involve him dying. Yeah, like threaten Lois Lane. Yeah, exactly, right? The, look, if you're an invincible person, don't fall in love with anyone, as, unless they're invincible <laughs> as well. Just common sense. Yeah, I, I mean, there's plenty of things to threaten uh, other than their life, right? reputation loved ones uh goals like even in investigative games right like the opportunity might might be lost the clue might be destroyed right the uh the the perpetrator might get away and i think this is a great way to uncover the levers that you're going to use elsewhere in the game plot armor aside right and and it really helps to and it really helps everyone at the table realize what the stakes are, not in terms of what is necessarily being threatened, but what is important to them and what is it that they are willing to sacrifice for or maybe even like willing to die for. Like it becomes less of an issue of like, do we have plot armor or do we not when you have players who are like trying to throw characters lives away in order to like save a PC or a, a peace treaty or whatever. Right. You can also leverage the plot. In this instance, the PCs are somehow chosen by fate or destiny or whatever, and they either cannot be killed or they're somehow destined to achieve something, and that's going to happen no matter what. Wheel of Time, um, Robert Jordan just bakes this right into his story. We talked about the, that in that episode. The, he has the concept of Taveran, who are people chosen by the wheel who twist fate around themselves. So, like, if an arrow is about to hit you in the neck, it doesn't because like you're supposed to be alive to do stuff. That's kind of a heavy-handed way to do it. You can also do this, you know, not necessarily for free, right? Planescape Torment, you paid a cost every time that you were reincarnated. Right. But I think that was one of the most compelling things about the game, right? It was like you had plot armor. Plot or it was plot armor of the game. Like I cannot die permanently. Well, most video games give you plot armor. <laughs> well, at the time anyway, not anymore. Yeah, I know. But no matter what, like the story is going to find some way for the characters to continue their quests, like literally like the 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 in-game story. Also, you want to keep it light. If the situation isn't life or death, no one needs to die. Yeah, like the easiest way to skirt the whole plot armor issue is like not to put it on the table. You know, if death is not an option, if death is not 
a consequence that is being leveraged in this particular game or even just this session, whatever, then awesome. The point is moot. And you still have death sitting in your back pocket just in case, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> in case death comes a knocking. I mean, you know, it, it's the climax of my teenage romance story. <laughs> right. <laughs> then if you have NPCs or villains that need to stay alive, keep them out of harm's way. It's a... Uh... It's much less believable when the BBEG miraculously survives a fall down the elevator shaft than it is when a PC does it. PCs are built for this. We've so far talked about, you know, whether player characters die or not. But if you think about it, sometimes the, the people that you're trying to keep alive, no matter what the story or the dice say, are all of the carefully crafted monsters and, and villains that you put together. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the classic problem of, like, why villains have dragons, right? It's like, you need the dragon in order to die unceremoniously in an alpha strike that was intended for the BBEG. Like, <laughs> that's the whole point of having a, a chief henchman, right? It's, somebody else takes the bullet. Right, like, this is what minions are for. This is why you have layer upon layer before you get to the evil emperor, and why, like, you know, the 19th level... Uh, archmage doesn't just like teleport onto the field and field and murder the entire party when they're level four because you never know there could be an errant crit <laughs> so like they all they always have them work through lieutenants and uh, you know like it's a it's a trope of gaming for a reason like it also works in the fiction you send someone who's an appropriate challenge and then the party isn't wiped in a TPK, but they still, you know, are able to defeat somebody, get a little bit of information and then keep working their way up. And you're never in a scenario where you're like, is there a trap door under the throne room? And that's how the vizier is getting away. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. This is also like a lot of times, oh, they're present via hologram or astral projection or zoom call <laughs> like they're not physically in the room but their presence is projected upon the room so that they are well out of harm's way see palpatine knew what he was doing right sure <laughs> i mean talk about plot armor somehow palpatine survived <laughs> yeah. all right fair <laughs> man fell down a reactor shaft it's fine he's the, cool the he's cool yeah, I think the key to that uh, that plot armor is that you just have to hand the franchise off to 13 people who don't know what they're doing and aren't talking to each other. They decide it's just not worth it to keep you dead. Yeah, it's literally like the last dart you could throw at the dartboard. <laughs> Bring the first guy back. <laughs> not even the first guy. <laughs> right. Bring the third guy <laughs> yeah, back. He's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's not even the first villain in that film. <laughs> Jabba's still there. The first villain in that film is Sand. The first villain in that film is Luke because he kills that sweet, sweet Rancor. <laughs> eventually. Eventually he kills the Rancor. It did mean a lot when the handler started crying. Anyway. <laughs> See? Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to do it narratively or you feel like you can't do it narratively, you can also wrangle plot armor mechanically. And many, many, many games already do this they put a thumb on the scale for the survival and success of the players 
right? Like PCs in D&D are just stronger and hardier than the monsters they face. This is denoted by the fact that there are death saves. And for the most part, monsters don't get death saves. But players, for some reason, get like three chances to not die. <laughs> it's because three AoE effects go off between <laughs> your death saving throws, obviously. <laughs> But obviously that is, it's a safety net mechanic, right? It's, right. Th it's there so that you don't immediately die. And then it gives the players not perfect agency over whether or not they die, but you have everyone else sitting here at the table and a player who's like, I do not want to die. Save me. Right. And and I mean, this works actually for, um, for monsters in D&D as well, right? Like you have the option to knock out any character, though arguably... I, no, I'm, I'm not even going to say arguably. One of the dumbest rules in D&D on its face is that you can choose at any time to knock somebody out with a melee attack and not with a ranged attack, as though these things aren't already abstracted. Yeah, and you can't do it with any kind of... Um... Spell. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, so just only melee people can, can incapacitate? Okay, great. If you think about, like, every game system that you've probably ever played... If it has action points, if it has fate rerolls, if it has inspiration, all of these are character level tools that are built into the system to make sure that the PCs get every possible chance to nudge the dice in their favor. Uh, Star Wars Saga Edition actually had a mechanic where like, you got um, force points every level in like quite a few of them, actually. Um, and you'd use them for like a reroll or a bonus or, or whatever. You know, they're basically like action points. Um, but one rule in the system was as long as you had one force point that literally every character would just always sandbag and never have fewer than one force point. Um, if you died, like died, died, you could avoid certain death somehow. Like you would just figure it out at the table. How is it possible that you survived as long as you spent your force point? Which, like, you know, sort of goes hand in hand with the fact like, that there's no way to come back from death in Star Wars. Right? No, right. Not in a meaningful way, because Force Ghost is a dumb class. <laughs> was that also part of Saga Edition? I'm sure it was in there somewhere. I think, I think it was probably like a 10-level class, and, like you age out of it or whatever. Right. Yeah, but I mean, these are all, like, all of these are examples that are baked into the system of avoiding randomness determining the outcome of your character's mm -hmm. fate. Right, and that's ultimately what what plot armor is meant to do in a game is it's meant to reduce the impact of dice luck. Yeah, there's also um, above character level there is like table level and table level mechanics that interact with narrative often. Um, like there are situations where you can you know spend a resource or the or the party can decide to spend a resource to like gain control of the narrative, and that can include like saying that this person or whatever did not die. Um, right. Is it Fantasy Flights, Star Wars games? You've got the pool of force points. and they Light side, dark side. Yeah, exactly. They flip back and forth. Like the, so anyone in the party can decide to like use um, the, the light side pool to like get a bonus uh, on something that they like definitely want to achieve. And then that turns into a dark side point that the GM can then use to like sort of do the same thing for enemies. Right. Yeah, I mean this is the uh the concept of burning fate in dark heresy, mm -hmm. right? Like you you cheat. You get to cheat. You're a PC, but you can only cheat a few times. Right. X number of times you're allowed to cheat and then eventually like it's literally eventually your luck runs out. 
Yeah, eventually, death catches up with us yeah. all. <laughs> but, you know, characters make decisions based around how many fate points they have left unburnt. Um, resurrection is also a fantasy trope uh, that functions as plot armor. Um, you know, reanimation. Uh, what is it in transhuman settings where you like fork your mind into a new body yeah sure mm-hmm. that's the eclipse phase word for it um all of those function as basically plot armor because they insulate you from the consequences of you know what is supposed to be the greatest consequence death obviously that means that your consequences like death can no longer be the primary feared consequence or because it's easily overcome yeah man we have an entire episode about that and then i think like the last way that you can deal with plot armor is above the table. You can just ask the players, or like a player could do this too, right? Just ask like, hey, everyone, where do you want to set the dial for this game? Gritty, where like there's no help, and if we die, we die. Or heroic, where it's all about the story and the narrative and... and you know, figuring out how we succeed or somewhere in the middle. I mean, we literally had to legislate this at the table in Dark Sun. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because it was like our third session. Uh, and my character got, got you know, dead, randomly, dead. unceremoniously killed. <laughs> and then AOE'd to death uh, out of his death saves and never got a chance to even come back. Mm-hmm. Like before we got a chance to even heal, he was dead. Uh and there was a moment at the table where where Angelo, who's DMing, was like, we said we were going to let PCs die in this game, but, like, I didn't think it was going to happen like this. <laughs> you know, like, do we, you know, I think there's a way that we can, and I was like, no. Like, <laughs> we said grit, I want grit. Watcher is dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if if... You're going to take a 5e D&D game and make it gritty. You probably don't want to also introduce uh, a ton of automatic AoE effects that add additional packets of damage. Oh, I disagree. You absolutely <laughs> do. That's that's how it became so deadly. <laughs> it was really deadly. But you're right. We absolutely had to have the above-the-table conversation. In the moment, certainly, like, is this what we want now that it has happened? But then also, like, how does that function at the table and how do we need to recalibrate the way that we think about this game right because this was not the first D 5e game that we had played it was the first that we had played with these kinds of rules so all of the assumptions were turned on their heads like we didn't we knew we weren't going to have access to uh raise dead magic or anything like that so if these if these characters die more easily and they stay dead what does that mean for the story which is supposed to be going from levels one through 20, right? I think that was the big thing we had to change is we ended up making the story not about the individual characters, but about the company itself. Right. But like, we're a very communicative table and that still took us a long time to figure out what exactly we wanted to do. I think it took everybody losing a character to to understand <laughs> the feeling, right? <laughs> like, like, and, and because, char- so... Not to get too far off topic, right? But like characters continue to live on after they die in the story, right? Like the memory of that character and the the influence that they had on the plot to that point isn't lost, right? And especially like we had, 
you know, a narrative convention whereby like the characters all knew each other, right? The next PC to step into the stable, like knew the PC who died, right? They were all members of the same company. They all had their own story. And so like all of our dead PCs got memorialized in some way, um, you know, in, in the way that they were either honored by the survivors or, you know, in the way that the story kept getting told of their death, you know, those kinds of moments, like, kept them alive and and that was the decision we had to make right was that we were we were going to do that um the plot armor that characters had was that we had built a narrative convention that let us do that right yeah it wasn't about murder hobos wandering the world and not caring about each other and oh well you died face down in the dirt so we're done with you right it was you you sacrificed yourself for the good of this military company Right, and like their surviving characters would continue to talk about them. And then the new characters as well, right? They they weren't just from nowhere, and they weren't like seventh cousins. They were people who were already part of the company, just in a different squad who were being reassigned. Yeah, that's certainly one narrative way to handle it if you're dialing back the amount of plot armor. Another thing that you can do, and it only works at certain tables, is you can play the whole plot armor thing straight but offer a false choice. So ask the players where they want that dial between Gritty and Heroic to be set. And then use the plot armor anyway, even if they've said, nah, don't worry about plot armor. Does that take away a little bit of agency from the players? Maybe, but if they don't know, then is it? I think this works depending on the narrative shape of the plot armor, mm -hmm. right? Um, Having fate, fate intervene to uh, overrule a dice roll can be really challenging if players say they don't want that. But having, you know, a narrative way to overcome death, for example, right? Uh, an, an unforeseen way of doing that even is interesting. And that happened as well in Dark Sun. Right. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> like we found the only way in the world to resurrect people and then decided we weren't doing that anymore. <laughs> I think it actually worked really well because, like, so the session where we discovered that people could come back to life was the session when my character died. And then wasn't that character was not given a choice about whether they came back to life. It's like that's how we found out it was doable, right? Yeah. It was like an NPC who we had along with us, like brought my character back to life so like i experienced the death of my character in exactly the same way that you did which is they went down and i was like it's fine it's fine they'll make some death saves or they'll get up or whatever and then it was three aoe's and they were dead um which like you know it was a lot i spent a lot of time on that character and then suddenly they're like alive again and i was like well i'm not looking this gift horse in the mouth and i'm not gonna grumble about gritty you're like cool <laughs> guess i'm not ripping up the sheet <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of us are like plot reason to never use this again go <laughs> <laughs> we're never letting this happen again yeah exactly turn it off turn it off you should be bastard <laughs> so actually i think we have an example here like a very recent example that we can talk about so spoilers for the most recent actual play uh season two but in the very last episode meepo dies and then there's a huge conversation about like is Meepo going to be brought back to life or is the villain going to be brought back to life? And, to face justice. Right, exactly. And like what it ultimately boiled down to is you told me 
it's my decision, right? Essentially. Uh, yes. You tried to make me roll for it. Yes. And I said, absolutely not. I will not <laughs> roll for it. <laughs> now, we've talked, we, like we already talked about in the debrief, well, like what actually happened was I said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to roll it out, right? It's a 50-50 shot. Uh, and I rolled it out and it ended up in Meepo's favor. So Meepo's alive again. Um, and what I would have done differently is like either made you roll it out or would have done it in public or whatever. But what you can do in those situations is like, I can say, I'm going to roll it out. There is no plot armor. And then just make the decision no matter what the die says and give me both plot armor. Which to be honest is kind of what I assumed was going to happen. <laughs> and see, that's, that's the thing. So much of it is about perception because you don't want to lose the tension of feeling like the character might die. Which is why I was like, oh, if I had to do it again, I would have rolled out in the open. Uh, no, no, that's fair. I mean, it, so as the player in that situation, right? Like, I, I'm looking at it purely kind of, I, I mean, in three ways. One, as a player who likes this character. Two, as a... Uh, you know, a showrunner who is trying to create an entertaining product and knowing that Meepo is a beloved character and three as like the, the gamer playing the game uh, and like knowing that like this has to go somewhere. Um, and if I roll it in the open, if I roll the dice, they can't change. Right. But if you roll the dice, they might never be rolled. <laughs> right right i might right. make a dice so rolling sound yeah right and so by abdicating like i have at least entertained the possibility that like you know fate is not being left to die rolls and so like and and you pointed out afterwards that like whether meepo stays dead or not like the the plot of meepo's alive and we go forward or the plot of meepo is dead and we have to find a way to resurrect him like either one is interesting Right, like there's a path forward either way, and at the end of it, Meepo comes back from the dead, or maybe not even at the end of it, maybe in the middle of the next, you know, adventure, Meepo comes back, and that's fine. Um, but in the moment, as a player, like even as I'm trying to manipulate plot armor and trying to apply it as like, I suppose subtly, but I don't know how subtle it was <laughs> in the final edit. Um, but as I'm trying to get it applied as subtly as possible, like I'm also like. I'm not thinking at all about any tomorrow, right? Like, all I'm thinking about is, like, Meepo has to live, right? Like, if Meepo dies, like, we lose this character, I lose this character, I'm not happy about that. I don't want to play Tez without Meepo, right? And so, like, that's my like that's my tension, right? And so, even, even though I'm using it as a bargaining chip, like, I, I don't have any less tension than if I had to roll the dice. Mm -hmm. and, and, and even so, I heard you roll it. I figured you were going to just decide what the outcome was, but like, I didn't know who you're going to reveal. You know, I, I had no less tension than had I rolled the dice. And, and in some ways, like I had more tension because I'm trying to glean which way you're leaning, <laughs> like, you know, like I'm playing poker instead of playing dice. <laughs> like I'm trying to read you in the moment to see if, if you've picked up what I've put down. And I think the takeaway here is even just having the conversation about plot armor and like who will survive and how safe are you in any given moment 
adds to the tension because it forces people to think about it. Like, okay, if mm-hmm. we're going to launch a full-scale assault on this castle, we've just had the plot armor conversation, and now I'm thinking, should we do this the safe way because I don't want to die, and I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to make it. <laughs> Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or on the flip side, like, have we have we determined this is a very heroic game and actually great? That means I think we should get some griffins and, like, leap off them onto the parapets, right? Because, like, <laughs> I'm not worried about slipping on a flagstone and dying. Or are we playing Band of Blades where it's a very heroic game in which you will die? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is a really important conclusion, actually, because plot armor is a, a kind of a much maligned trope, right? Like, it's an easy thing to ding an author, to ding a game, to ding a GM for for employing. Um, but when it's on the table, right, when everybody sees it, when it's something that, that everyone at the table is aware of, it becomes a tool like anything else, right? It can be overused, it can be, you know, ignored, but it's it's another way that you can influence the tension and the buy-in of the players at the table which is ultimately you know the dramatic point of a role-playing game Mm -hmm. use it judiciously and like as a player ask for it when you think it would be appropriate like i think one of the sort of examples that people use of hating overly realistic games is the the rogue swashbuckler who like you know what do you want to do i want to like leap down from the second story and swing across the chandelier and then like kick swing from a chandelier right always swinging from a chandelier Yeah, of course i want to do that right but like in a lot of games that requires four skill rolls and if i fail any of them i fall on my ass or maybe even like die because i'm skewered by the enemy so like what happens i don't do any of those things i do nothing cool i walk up i swing my sword right exactly so like if we have the conversation about like do i have the eh, it is a kind of plot armor. Do I have the plot armor to like do a cool acrobatic thing and like not worry about it? Do I have the plot armor to set an inn on fire and kidnap <laughs> and, <laughs> a bishop? And not immediately be pincushioned by regulars? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think you do. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there in the business card. Rogue archaeologist. <laughs> All right, so go forth and uh, don't worry about it until you know you have to worry about it. All right, do you hear that, Ishan? That's the, the gentle pop and crackle of a Yule log. Nope, nope, that's an inn. That's an entire inn, and the whole thing's on fire. If we've burned down the inn, then there's nowhere to go but the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N, dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan on Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice, minus meat. And you can tweet at the show. At TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the King Under the Mountain. Ishan, what is the King Under the Mountain? Shane, I will admit that I probably spent a little bit too long making this character, but I think it is one of my favorite ones that I have made in a very long time for the Forge. I know that you are a Tolkien aficionado, of course. Uh, as you know, I am Tom Bombadil's number one fan. I have I have Bombadil tattooed across my back. <laughs> you are Goldberry herself, essentially. Uh, but you read The Hobbit, right? I think you, you read The Hobbit and stopped there, essentially. 
Uh, no, I read The Hobbit and I read The Fellowship and then I quit The Fellowship and then I read The Fellowship right. and I and got into Two Kings and then two uh, kings. I quit The Two Kings, <laughs> Two Towers, whatever. Who cares? Uh, Amazing. And then I finished, Amazing. I ended up, I think I finished Helm's Deep. All right. Is you have Two Towers. You have uh, proven your Tolkien bona fides. But you, Did I read the whole thing? But you've read The Hobbit. So Wait, was that the whole thing? Uh, this is the most important conversation we've ever had. Did I read the whole <laughs> trilogy or not? You did not. Oh, okay. No. I only finished two. Helm's Deep is like halfway. <laughs> Through what? The whole thing. So was, I didn't even finish the second book? No, you didn't finish the second book. Oh, that's dope. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Book's trash. Don't read it. Hobbit's fine. <laughs> the Hobbit is a children's story. Okay. The, the King Under the Mountain is, as everyone knows, the title of the dwarf who rules the kingdom of Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. Uh, unfortunately, a red dragon named Smaug took the place over, killed everybody, and now lives there on a pile of gold. I posit that a real king under the mountain would have been able to prevent this. So this is a build of a dwarf who can hold off an ancient red dragon by themselves. Okay. Now, let's be clear. An ancient red dragon is CR 24. We are not trying to kill this dragon because killing an ancient red dragon requires both plot armor, eh, relevant, eh, and some sort of MacGuffin, like, uh, I don't know, the dragon has a missing scale right over its heart and you happen to have an arrow of dragon slaying in your quiver. <laughs> We're just trying to make it not worth it for the dragon to take this kingdom. All right. Okay. So those, that's what we're operating under. The assumptions we're operating under is it's just us and a dragon, and we're going to survive, and the dragon's going to be like, forget this. I'm going to go kill everyone in Lake Town. All right, so the king under the mountain <laughs> is the jagged little pill. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm into it. Okay, great. What's the build? It is Forge Cleric 17, Monster Slayer Ranger 3. This is simpler than I thought, given how much time he's put into this. But yeah, sure, walk <laughs> me through it. All right, so race, obviously Mountain Dwarf. Plus okay. two strength, plus two con. You are going to trade out all of your extraneous armor and weapon proficiencies for like eight more tool proficiencies. I like Thieves' Tools so that you don't have to bring a burglar because they suck. Carpenter's Tools for like making barrels, which could come in handy for, I don't know, something uh, vehicles, water for riding those barrels. I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just throwing out things that could show up in any story. I don't know. <laughs> okay. This is, I think, making clear to me that I haven't read The Hobbit in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but proceed, sir. Okay. All right. So let's kick it off with six levels of cleric. Forge cleric gives you heavy armor and smith's tools. Blessings of the forge lets you apply a plus one to either a weapon or a piece of arm of armor. It's good at low levels. Uh, you can use your channel divinity to create tools or other objects, but most likely you're going to use the optional uh, class feature to recover spell slots. And by the time you get to level six, you get Soul of the Forge, which gives you resistance to fire at all times and plus one to mm -hmm. AC in heavy armor. Okay. Your spells, your spells are really actually not that important for this build for what you're trying to do, but like Guidance, Bless, Shields of Faith, Hold Person, Spirit Guardians are all amazing, as always. Classic spells. Yep. Classic Classic cleric loadout. Totally. All right, then three levels of ranger. It does not actually matter when you take ranger, just don't take it first because you want the uh, wisdom saving throws. And ranger does not give you that. But it gets you martial weapons because, like, you're the king out of the mountain and, like, maybe you're Thorin or, like, someone like Thorin 
Uh, and so, like, you use all the weapons because you're cool and you use the weapons. And you got, like, a braided beard. You get an extra scale. You get expertise. You get favorite enemy dragons, of course. You learn Draconic and two other languages. You take a fighting style. What is it? It's archery. You're not dex-based, but it's archery. Of course it is. For the extra damage. For the... Nope, the extra accuracy. For the using your arrow dragon slang <laughs> to actually uh, kill yeah. this thing. Okay. I thought we weren't going to kill it. Uh, well, I mean, look, if... if well, also, actually, the next thing is you also get speak with animals. So in case a thrush does know a way to kill this dragon with one arrow, it can tell it to you and you will know what it is saying. Convenient. Convenient. Okay. Yeah. Natural explorer mountains, obviously. Uh, you get hunter's sense at level three, wisdom modifier times per day. You learn a creature's damage, immunities, resistances, or vulnerabilities. Were I a GM and someone used that on, I don't know, Smaug, I would say uh, immune to fire. And hey, there's a tiny hole in a scale over his heart. That might be something. I don't know. I'd call that a vulnerability. Okay. <laughs> and then Slayer's Prey, as a bonus action, you, uh, until your next rest, you deal an extra 1d6 weapon damage uh, against an enemy. And, of course, that enemy is the ancient red dragon right in front of your face. Right. So then we will finish 17 levels of cleric. Mm -hmm. We get blessed strikes. So that's once per round you can add D8 radiant damage to an attack. So this is important. Uh, the forge cleric comes with 1D8 fire damage, but there is the optional class feature, blessed strikes, which just makes everybody, all the cleric domains, extra damage the same and radiant which, of course, the Red Dragon is not immune to. Right. Uh, 10, you get Divine Intervention, just in case you want to pray the dragon away. Sometimes that works. It actually works 17% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then at 17, uh, you get Immunity to Fire. Bing, bing, bing. This obviously is what we're here for. Uh, and Resistance to Physical Damage from Non-Magical Attacks. Shane, do you know what creature in the Monster Manual does not have magical attacks? Kind of famously, actually. Dragons. Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> now, feet... At least the early ones. <laughs> For feats, you want Heavy Armor Master and Resilient Con. Uh, and you're going to boost Strength and Con. So here's, here's what ends up happening. Which one is Heavy Armor Master? That's the one that reduces uh, incoming damage from non-magical attacks by three. Great. <laughs> <laughs> So you're going to end up with about 186 HP at 20th level and a 21 AC if you're not uh, using any other like magical stuff. So when the dragon attacks you and goes full out, it can breathe fire on you and that does absolutely nothing. It can also claw, claw, bite, and then use a legendary, legendary action to whip you with its tail. And that will do approximately 23 damage altogether. Uh -huh. If you are dodging, it drops it to about 13 damage per round from the Ancient so Red Dragon. Just take, just take the dodge action. <laughs> you can hold out for I can do this more all day. than a minute. Yeah, well, also you have ninth level healing spells, so right. <laughs> you could do this all day. Um, and remember, you're fighting this alone. Legendary actions have to be taken at the end of another character's turn, which means the dragon can only use one legendary action. Which means it's probably <laughs> using the tail action just because that does the most damage. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say, we haven't even touched on the ninth level cleric spells that you are packing. You can kill, you can kill this thing. Like, you can definitely kill this thing. <laughs> well, sure. But that's just because ancient red dragons are 
They're not amazing. They got creeped. Yeah. They got power creeped. I know. I mean, like, the, probably the best way to do this is Forge Cleric also gives you animate objects, which is an extraordinarily OP spell. Um, you just animate 10 gold pieces in this massive horde, and they actually do uh, quite a bit of damage. <laughs> <laughs> Great. You've beaten him to death with his own horde. That's, that's exactly Have it. Have you no shame, sir? <laughs> if you want to do this at earlier levels, you obviously can. You don't need Ranger here. Do you need to be totally immune? No. Like, if you have an actual party of, oh, I don't know, 12 other dwarves and a halfling, then, like, you can probably do this at, like, level 12 with resistance to fire and your full complement of spells. You'll be all right. <laughs> dwarves and a halfling. <laughs> Worst table ever. They're ablative armor. <laughs> 12, 12 lousy Scottish accents. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. All right. Uh before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters yep. for supporting us despite this. <laughs> Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. And supporters at any level get access to the Plot Hook of the Week bonus content. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about playing survival games. I think you've done enough survival games for us. <laughs> <laughs> Just take the dodge action. Uh, and in the character creation forge? We're building Judge Dread. Well, that's it for episode 308 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.